You're listening to Late Nights, on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley. You're listening to Late Nights, on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley. Have you seen the new Oppenheimer movie that goes from uh, intense color to black and white? Very interesting. When I seen the movie, I kind of didn't even realize it was switching back and forth between black and white and color, because the story uh, is so powerful, and the visuals are stunning. It's a, it's a biography like nothing you've ever seen before. And if you see it on film, it's just a mind blower. I didn't get a chance to see it on film. I think I see it on digital, but I had friends that went and they just said it was amazing. It was amazing enough in just a digital format. Um, yeah. And uh, my mother was really, uh, she really um, admired Oppenheimer. She knew a lot about him. Um, so I kind of grew up hearing about Oppenheimer, about the atomic, uh, the work on the atomic bomb. Uh, my mom was fascinated by the special theory of relativity and Einstein. And uh, she was kind of a shamanic person. She had training when she was younger from a, a traditional Irish woman that spoke Gaelic that came to the United States. And she... This woman was trained in how to how to heal and in the native practices. Yes, Ireland does have natives still, and has a powerful tradition, uh, indigenous orientation. And this woman uh, knew a lot, brought a lot of knowledge from Ireland, and she spent a lot of time in the United States. I guess she would be a sort of an early ethnobotanist. I don't know, but my mom, when she was younger, uh, studied under her. And so we'd use a lot of plants and, and different things in our house because we didn't always have the money to go to the doctor. And in this time period, uh, oh, 1966, so my mom uh, had uh, divorced my father and uh, she remarried a short time after that. And her and my stepfather decided to leave Utah and come to or go to uh, Des Moines, Iowa. And um, we made this long trip there. And we moved into the big white house on the hill there on Ingersoll Avenue. It's no longer there. There's a big apartment complex that's been built there. There's a, a beautiful hill there still. Apparently that hill has been there for before the city was even there. It might even be uh, associated with uh, Native American mounds, uh, which I haven't really thought about until today. There's a lot of uh, indigenous people lived in Iowa. There's tribes there. And um, that was uh, a place that had a lot of uh, intense uh, cultural uh, connections for thousands of years. And when the tribes left, when the, uh, as we're called, the invading culture came in, uh, they left behind uh, their villages and their way of life, many of those are what we call artifacts now. And I guess that's kind of why we lived on this hill. It's still very beautiful. And there's uh, two 
two-story house. I guess three, because it had an attic. It was kind of a strange place. It had a very old fireplace. I think the house is well over 100 years old. So uh, Des Moines is a, it's a real, it has a big river, maybe two rivers that run through it. I can't remember. Uh, and before it became a city, uh, it was just full of these, these uh, beautiful forest woods, as they called them. Yeah, they, they were expansive, following the, uh, the meandering path of the river. And uh, Iowa is exceptionally beautiful uh, state. Um, people always say, well, it's full of corn. Well, it's full of a lot more than just corn. And it's, it's just absolutely beautiful. Uh, the Midwest is beautiful if you sometimes get out of the cities. But we lived in the city at the time. My stepfather and mother moved to Des Moines, and I started to uh, attend school there. Uh, unfortunately, I got really sick. Uh, everybody in my family got sick. We didn't have a lot of money, so my mom would try to sustain us with her plant medicines, which worked to uh, some degree. I mean, she's, she's still pretty young. She's in her late 20s, early 30s. And then I, I, my younger sister, my full sister, is two years younger than me. And then I had a half-sister, and she was quite little at the time, and very sick as well. Uh, but, you know, the, the plants and the alternative medicines can only go so far, especially in that time period. We've come a long ways since then. But my mom did know a lot about plants. She was an intensely interesting person, even for a little boy. I was seven years old. She could really bring down these very deep, way out there concepts and make them exciting and understandable for a seven-year-old. And my mom was gifted not only in using plants, but in healing practices as well, which I thought was a little strange then. We... Um, we were members of the Mormon religion, and um, that has a lot of interesting uh, has an interesting history to it and interesting connections. But outside of that, my mom had a lot of other other interests, and healing was practices were something she was just getting to to know about then, and using plants. But unfortunately, that wasn't enough at the time period, and I contracted the red measles and started to run a really high fever uh, and it got worse and worse and apparently uh, from my mom's stories because I don't remember all this too much in detail it's kind of a kind of a gray area and my mom had had explained a lot of this to me my stepfather who's in his 80s now doesn't seem to have much of a memory this time period he said it was unpleasant time period because he's out trying to make money and pay bills and sustain our our family and in addition to everyone being sick at this time and uh so it was it was a tough time for him and he just told me he'd rather not think about it <laughs> and he has a selective memory of course as, as, as we all do and his, his details are sketchy at the time period although interesting but this fever got worse and worse, and I, I, if that's the right way to say it, it just, it just got, I just remember being so sick and so disoriented. And then at some point, I lost consciousness. And they took me to the hospital. Uh, apparently, they had had um, elders, uh, which we had, have in the Mormon church, that uh, 
perform these incredible healing practices. Uh, they, they hold a priesthood and they come and they, and they minister to you, as it's called. And um, later on in my life, this would, uh, would become a miraculous thing and actually save my eyesight in one of my eyes. I'd had a rock thrown at me directly went into my eye and took part of my eye out in this miraculous process of healing my eye was just I, I it, and within a week it was completely healed it was a pretty serious thing I thought I was going to lose my eyesight for a while but at this time period it didn't the, the healing didn't seem to work too well and so the fever got so bad that I passed out and went to the hospital and was there for some time and this will play into the rest of the story, of course. Um, but this fever was so bad, when I finally came home from the hospital, uh, it had caused some brain damage in the way of I, I, had to, I lost my coordination. I had to learn how to basically walk again and move again. And I remember it being a difficult process. And it took a long time. It actually took several years. And I had a lot of problems with catching a ball and with just basic coordination we take for granted uh, was a pretty tough thing for me for a while. But it was it was bad, a bad situation for a little boy. I didn't go to school for a long time. But there comes this kind of a situation uh, where I started to be intrigued by this idea that I, that I died. Or at least that I was in, I didn't know what what that meant, coma, but that I was in an unconscious state. And I started to entertain this idea of, of dying. And, and, and somehow, or, or at least maybe not dying, but being unconscious in the hospital and that I was living out my life at that point in the bed in the hospital. So this experience of reality was actually in a, I was in a dream state or in the hospital experiencing reality from the hospital up until this, I guess you could say, up until this current time period. And, and so, I mean, of course, at that time, I was only seven years old, but I was under this impression that somehow I, I, there was this distinct possibility that um, I was no longer, um, no longer walking around, but that I was experiencing my life uh, in the hospital in an, un in an unconscious format. This this gets a, a little uh, mixed up because I and I spoke about this before I think on in between stations that um, I had an earlier uh, serious uh, um, accident at, at at a hospital when we were still living in Utah when my mom was with my with my father my natural father not my stepfather but my my real father. Or, or just getting ready to separate from him. And I had a horrible sore throat and got this just close to pneumonia. And you know, your tonsils, when they fight um, uh, illness, swell up. That's, what, that's one of the natural ways that um, they fight um, disease and sickness. But in that time period, they did what's called eptendectomies. And I don't think they really do that too much anymore. They took your, they, they would take your tonsils out and, and, uh, for one reason or another, when they were doing this, and this is where the death experience comes in, my initial death experience, and even though I was a young boy, this is a really powerful event. Uh, 
And as they're taking my tonsils out, I, I go into what's called massive hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging, uh, massive bleeding, and they can't stop it. And and I I became a sort of disembodied uh, essence, spirit, where I uh, hovered over my body and I could see them working in my little boy body down there. And and, and then there was this just sort of very str- I was in this very strange state, uh, dark odd, uh, things were kind of blurry, almost a vacuum-like uh, place. And I remember it being very frightening. And then looking down at my body and thinking, you know, I'm going to die. And of course, a little boy doesn't have a lot of information on his head about what that means, but I do know that something's going to happen to me. And I, I remember that very distinctly. Um, and so that was what I refer to as my initial death experience. Um, and then three years later, I contracted the measles. We left Utah, moved to, to the Midwest there in Des Moines, Iowa, and I contracted red measles and then had this horrible fever. So sometimes I get things a little mixed up there. And there was, again, in the second, uh, the second time, a sort of death experience. And wrapped up in that was this, this preoccupation with... Um, I was still in the hospital in, in a coma, comatose state. Is that right? And unconscious and experiencing my life as it was. And I used to talk to my mom about this and she'd say, you know, she was, a, she was an amazing woman. She'd, she was wonderful listening to you and coming up with these sort of uh, odd ideas and, and, and strange ways of thinking that were fascinating to me. And she said, you know, and I said, well, Mom, am I dead? Am I still back in the hospital? And she's like, well, you had a really serious illness. Uh, you almost died, but I think you're alive now. But she said, you know, it's possible you're in between states of consciousness. Now, a little boy doesn't understand what consciousness and unconscious is, but she had ways of explaining it. I don't remember in particular. So began this whole sort of idea about, um, am I dreaming or am I awake? And that's kind of a, you know, a baseline premise of in-between stations. And I talk a lot about the, the power of dreaming and the power of, of alternate realities and the possibility of those. I don't think it's a possibility. I think it's a distinct reality. I've talked about the physicist uh, Hugh Everett and coming up uh, with this, um, the multiverses, which is sort of a, a common thing now. It's in a lot of our movies and our books. I just uh, got a book, I can't remember the name of it, where this, this whole love story takes place that's based in alternate realities and alternate um, decisions that the uh, main character makes that affect, that affect the outcome in various ways and in various kinds of reality. So I begin to sense the presence of another, uh, another person. I don't think it became solidified until uh, several years later that there was this sort of twin that I had. Later on, uh, I gave her the name of Sarah. There were several people who have been in my life that were important to me named Sarah. One of those was my great-grandmother, who was an uh, art Native American, was a very interesting and unusual person. Uh, she was connected to the Hispanic cultures and uh, the Pueblo cultures. Um, and uh, she was a really uh, interesting person. And her name was Sarah. 
and I've had uh, several important people in my life. Well, not several. I had a really important uh, art professor uh, that uh, introduced me to uh, to serious drawing on a university college level. Uh, her name was Sarah. She was this beautiful Jewish woman. I have a, a very close friend now, and we're connected through dreams and uh, the Yahe experience. Her name's Sarah. Um, it's just. And so this this person back then, uh, when I was a boy, Sarah, uh, was seemed like they'd always been there. And you know, this is a really difficult subject to kind of discuss. Um, I I actually during COVID, I guess at the end of 2020, I started to I I, I actually wrote it. It's finished now, an entire novel. It's five books, almost a thousand pages. Uh, timelines are are Sarah. It's not. It's it's completed, but I'm gonna have to go back through, which is the worst part of writing for me. I'm not a writer, by the way, but I had a lot of time during COVID because I, I was in isolation. Uh, the the job I had at the museum was put on hold. I just barely got that job back. It's almost been three years, uh, so I supported myself with my art, uh, painting, and doing that during during COVID. And of course, it was in. So, severe isolation. I actually got really sick during COVID. Thought I had COVID, but I couldn't go to the emergency room because it was so, there's so many people going there. And so uh, I never did get tested uh, to see if I actually was positive for COVID then, but was pretty sick, uh, got got better, I guess, and then lived in isolation for at least two years. And I think we all did. Um, and now we're in this, what's, I guess, basically post-COVID. We're not in isolation wearing masks anymore. But I wrote this long novel, and I could spend sometimes 12 hours a day just writing, 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 going back and forth. And so this whole novel, the story was born uh, about this uh, central figure called Sarah. And what I started to realize was, um, was I went back, and because it starts out in, in you know, in the, I mean, it has a baseline of, of truth. And it's based on uh, when I lived in Des Moines, Iowa, which I talked about at the beginning of the show. And um, let's let's uh, let's go to a song, and then we'll come back to just talking about the ghostly other. Thank you. 
That was by Ghostly Twin, which is an appropriate name for this uh, broadcast we're having this morning. Ghostly Twin and uh, the Illuminati. Kind of a kind of a good song, an interesting song. Uh, a group I I like. So this figure, Sarah. I, I guess for one reason or another, you know, it's a basic philosophical. Uh, a lot of people get into philosophy. I've known some people that actually do it for a living. They're f- real philosophers, like Plato or Socrates. Is 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 contemplating what what is reality in in a, a sort of rational way, and that's really a baseline for our our culture for Western society. Um, we don't. Well, you know, I meet lots of people. Well, I've never read uh, Plato or Socrates, and I'm like, well, it's it doesn't matter because you do a lot of what they wrote about. Western culture is formed on ancient Greece and has a heavy uh, influence in in our culture. And a lot of the things we do and the way we think is based on Greek thought. Uh, a lot of, even though we're a Christian nation, a lot of the early Christian writers uh, in the first century A.D. after after Christ's death, um, studied uh, the Greeks, read Plato's and Socrates and Aristotle, and it's part of the whole thought process as they begin to put together the Christian religion. And uh, it's just a it's just a whole way. Even in the course, the sciences and the way we look at that came from a, a lot of the, the Greek thought. Of course, there's other civilizations that play into that, but it's a it's as you as you start to read a lot of these discourses and look into Greek, ancient Greek, ancient Greek philosophy, you realize that it's just, it's so much a part of the way we are. It's kind of, I mean, almost everything we do is connected to that. And that's, that's one of the things that's constantly being debated is, is the, is the concept of reality and what it means and how, how deep is reality. And I think we, we view things, uh, through cultural screens, through the way we've been raised, to the way we've been educated in school way we view history, uh, our objectives and goals, um, even the way we go into debt and, and buy houses and buy maybe way out of our means as part of our culture. And culture is a beautiful thing. Culture and society is, is it, all these different ways, successful strategies of, of surviving, of, of experiencing life. Some of these, some cultures are thousands of years old, like the Hopi and Zuni people here, the Dene people have been around for a long time in the same region, especially the, uh, the ancient Pueblo people have been here for thousands of years, migrating around and became stationary and became what's called the modern Pueblo people today, but they've been here a very long time. So they understand things about weather, and, uh, changes in the weather, about the plants, what plants to use. Uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot to be said when you've been in the same place for a long time and you've retained the the pre-Christian uh, belief system, uh, which here is extremely ancient and it's involved in the processes of everything being alive in nature and multi-dimensional reality as we call it, which it really isn't. Uh, it's just part of everyday life when you go to the reservations and things like dreams and ghosts. Messengers and interdimensional uh, entities are just a part of everyday life. It's not really seen as magic. It's just the way you live. Talking about, you know, I, I spoke about this before, talk, talking about dreams, talking about what we call visions is sort of happens every day in, in these uh, different tribes. And it's just, 
part of the functioning reality. Everything is living. So as a little boy there in Des Moines, Iowa, I went to to Greenwood Elementary School. This is a baseline uh, reality, one of the realities in the book, my book, Timelines or Sarah. It's this beautiful uh, century, century school, as they call them. It's been around a long time since the beginning of the 20th century, maybe even the late 19th century. And uh, it's, it's named after these woods that are still there, these beautiful, this beautiful forest called the Greenwoods, which is a park now. And it has this beautiful pond in the middle of the park. And I would walk home from Greenwood Elementary School through this park, and I'd spend a lot of time there. I've been, I've been doing solos. <laughs> I think my mom was busy with my two sisters then, and trying to um, just keep the family going. My and my stepfather's out, you know, working hard to pay bills. So um, uh, I, I don't remember my mom really getting in the car and coming and picking me up from school. It wasn't far from my house, I think 15 or 20 minutes. And so I'd wander through the, these beautiful woods there. Um, and I've, I've kind of been doing, I think my first mountain solo was when I was in the fourth or fifth grade. Can you believe that? I can't believe my mom would just let me go. I even had a little backpack. I mean, if my two sons who are older now, if they would have just taken off in the fourth grade and went into the mountains or the woods or the forest here <laughs> in Flagstaff, I don't think so. But for one reason or another, my mom just let me go. And so I started doing these solos. And, and when, you're, when you're disconnected from uh, the school, from, from what was your everyday reality, the, the woods and the forest become a kind of teacher. And, you know, this is a place where in, in Celtic history where the elves live and the, and the dwarves live. And, you know, and the whole uh, concept of Lord of the Rings is born in Celtic history. It's, it's, and, uh, and it's really a, a, a beautiful place for your imagination. So I started to become aware of this, 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 this girl, this twin that was my same age. And she was always, like, following me around. She was always there. You know, you don't talk to people about this. You know, you're the imaginary friend. <laughs> There's been some, some pretty good movies made about that. Some kind of pretty frightening ones, too. Like The Shining and some... <laughs> you know, the, go- the ghostly friend. that You know it's there, but and you're not going to talk to anybody. You know, it's, your, it's like your, your, your mom says, Honey, who, who are you talking to in your room? Is there somebody else in there with you? Oh, oh no, mom, mom, no, it's, I'm, I'm just, I'm just playing. Uh, okay, I thought I heard you talking to somebody. Oh, no, no, mom, you know, it's just, it's just me. You know, my mom, I don't think I ever talked to my mom about this, 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 this ghostly twin that was with me, that would play with me, follow me around. And actually, uh, just, you know, and I, I remember, you know, I think, I think children can get lonely. Uh, and I and I really started to get even more lonely after I'd been really sick and had been absent from school for a while. And so I started to really uh, spend a lot of time with myself. And this is where Sarah comes into play, this this ghostly other. She was she kept me company. She and and, and the strange thing about this is I started to realize, you know, I I can't ever remember a time when she wasn't there. I, I kind of think she was born with me. Have you ever read Philip K. Dick? He talks about the whole twin thing, like his his uh, his twin sister um, 
died, uh, I think, a day at birth or a day after she was born. And so he always felt connected to her. I learned about this later on. I didn't know about this obsession with, with a ghostly twin that, that people have. But several, a lot of people have it. I'm not the only one. But um, it's, it's, it's strange uh, because uh, she, she was very real to me. She became even more real. I mean, and so she's in my dreams a lot. Uh, even to this day, uh, Sarah's still in my dream. She grew with me, or the same age, you know. And she's, you know, I'll, and I've talked about, I have very extensive dreams. Yeah. Um, we, and I've talked about that in several episodes, where uh, these distinct, hardcore realities have existed since I've been a boy. I've been dreaming about these cities, uh, these, these families I live in. I'm a completely different person with a different face and uh, and yeah these are very powerful realities when I'm unconscious and I'm asleep and I'm dreaming about them and so it's it's and I've, I've had these dreams since I've been a little boy some of my very first memories are of dreams and it was a it was a problem in the beginning to get of getting what so-called reality mixed up with my dream world and my, you know my mom helped me with that I come from a family of people that have a lot of dreams and my mother was uh, was good at at helping me along with that and saying, well, son, you know, this is a different reality. This is a different place that you go. Uh, but when you wake up, it's important to realize that this is this is your reality. This is your everyday waking reality. You go to school. And there's tasks you do, and you play with your friends. And there, there we go. Play with your friends. <laughs> so, so Sarah's always been in my dreams, in one form or another, and I know it's her. And um, she's, she's like, hey, I miss you, Dave. Hey, you know, look at this uh, item that's going to go on. Hey, hey, this is what's going to happen. Hey, let's go for a ride in this car. And then, and then in these dreams, sometimes I'm married to her in previous different time periods. Uh, we're, we're with each other. and We have a family. Sister, it's, it's a whole interesting uh, concept. You know, Jung, uh, Carl Jung, has a whole name for this, and it's called the anima figure. It's this, uh, it's this, it's this female opposite that you have in the Jungian uh, dream and uh, depth psychology. And uh, I've read about that a lot, studied a lot. I, I, I kind of agree with it, and I, and I kind of don't. I, I think it's fascinating that we have an opposite. Uh, one of the main themes in my novel is alchemy. Uh, the main character, Sarah Winters, in the novel, uh, is uh, she's uh, has a PhD in alchemy. She comes from a, uh, a intellectual Jewish family in upstate New York, and part of that family's from Iran. They they sort of marry early in the family's history. There's an Iranian history, Islamic, that marries into the Jewish faith. And uh, Sarah's from an intellectual family, and she has chose, um, at least partly, I don't make it completely clear, uh, Middle Ages alchemy. And in Middle Ages alchemy, it's uh, quite interesting. Some of it seems to be based on tribal uh, Celtic and uh, tribal systems before the Romans come in. Uh, some of the alchemy has roots of that, because it's early chemistry, but it's also a whole spiritual philosophy on what you have uh, Luna, which is the female opposite, and Sol, the male opposite. So 
The male opposite is the red philosopher's stone and the female opposite is the white philosopher's stone. And with these two things, have you ever seen the, those strange hermaphrodites? You know, a male and female in one body, they have two heads. That, a lot of that comes not only from mythology, but it comes from, uh, from the belief that um, the couple, the male and female, uh, you know, in, in romance, husband and wife, form an entire reality, have children, and from those children, more children are born, and, and just, you know, these two people form an entire reality. But there's a genesis that takes place, and where the whole, uh, the whole universe is formed through these, these two people. They're the principal, you know, they're like Adam and Eve. Um, and uh, tribal systems have these creators too. Like in Mesoamerica, you have deer one, which is the male, and deer one, which is the female. And they, and they come together and they form this, the whole Mesoamerican uh, uh, creation of, of the fifth world, as they call it. Because indigenous people have these different time epics, these different uh, time periods that are called the other worlds. So with uh, Aztecan and Mixtecan, there's many tribes down there, Zapotec, uh, the fifth world, we're in the fifth world. So the creation of the fifth world is, um, is it, through, through these principal, uh, this principal creator couple, dear one. There's other names for them. There's Quetzalcoatl and this is twin brother Sholo, the, the dog entity. And in dogs play into this tree. This is very interesting. Canine entities are extremely important in the tribal foundation of reality. Not only in the with the living, but with the dead. They're kind of psychopomps. They kind of guide you, you know, like Anubis in the Egyptian ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead. Anubis is an important part of the afterlife. So he guides you through this whole process of moving through the the, the land of, of the dead. He's part of the judgment sequence. And this is a, the case in a lot of, in Mesoamerican history too, the canine plays an important role. And not only in, in the codices, which are just pictorial manuscripts that are pre-Columbian, extremely complex and fascinating. They're interdimensional. So I, I think I'm bringing that up because um, this whole concept of how much reality do we know? Through, I mean, through our culture, uh, to the way you've grown up, to the things your parents told you, the school you went to, the religion you're in or not in, the books you read, influence how you perceive and see reality. And there's so many different cultures, you know, and there may be nomadic cultures. And well, when I was in the Middle East, there's the Bedouins. That's, they're these, these uh, wandering nomadic tribes that follow the seasonal cycles. And they're herders, and they have a whole way of perceiving reality that's different from the way because we're sedentary. We're, we're in these cities, and this is, and and we're in this this place, and we don't move. Well, we move around, but some a lot of times not that much. We're pretty stationary. But these uh, nomadic tribes, they're migrating around, following the seasons, and they have a whole different structure of reality. Or you go in the Amazon basin; these thick, diverse, huge rainforests are. And there's a whole different, there's even a tribe that can't uh, distinguish the colors of blue and green because they don't see the sky. The canopy is so thick that they're on the forest floor and that's their reality. I mean, it's that thick and, you know, it's in, in the, some of these rainforests and for thousands of years, that's how they see the world. And, and they, I mean, they know it rains and of course they know there's a sky, but it's largely not perceived in, in colors like we, you know, the sky is blue. Um, 
and they have a whole different strategy on the way they approach life. They're hunting, and, and they, these, these uh, tribes have an incredible knowledge of plants. I mean, it's changing now. Because a lot of, with, with the advent of Christianity, and with the cruelties of the Spaniards, and, then, and also some of the ways they introduced the old world concepts, uh, and then the modern day missionaries, a lot of things have changed. So, and, and of course, modernities come into a lot of these, these tribes, and there's been a change uh, some, in some tribes to a great degree. You know, corporations, oil refineries, things like this have went in there and changed the whole concept of the world, the rainforest they live in. But they have different strategies. The Hopi and Zuni people here know how to live in drought environments and, and how to raise food that uh, doesn't require a lot of water. And they know, they know, how, they have a history of, of forest fires and of, of uh, all kinds of fascinating things that took place over thousands of years in the same place. You can imagine living in the same place. You kind of, you kind of see these cycles. You're listening to Late Nights on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley. You're listening to Late Nights, on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley. So, so your, your child, your little boy, or your little girl's in the room, and she, he's talking to somebody. You're like, I don't think anybody else is in that room. You, you throw the door open or you walk in. I don't think you throw I'm the door here. open. You just kind of quietly open the door to see if somebody else is in there. I'm behind you. And then you realize nobody else is in there. And of course, you know, <laughs> Hello? little boy or little girl just suddenly stops talking. Honey, were you talking to someone? And they'll be looking, oh, oh no, Mom, I, I wasn't talking to anybody. Or they might say, yeah, I was talking to my ghost friend, Mom. <laughs> You're like, oh, that's just imagination. And I, and I, I don't know. I, I, I think when you're around these these tribal uh, systems that I'm in, you know, that's where I spend a lot of my life. It's not. It's it's kind of an everyday thing. There are spirit entities. There are non-material beings and material beings. Um, you know, we have this whole problem with materialism and non-material. Well, where's the physical evidence? You know, the Newtonian thing. Everything's based on physical evidence. Or to the degree we understand what that is, I don't think anybody was doing uh, nuclear uh, fission and fusion uh, until you know, till the 1930s, 1940s. Um, uh, that was kind of a new thing. I mean, science we have we we it comes up with self-correction, it comes up with ideas and, and inventions that can measure things that we didn't even know that were there. Uh, penicillin, germs, uh, these are all new fairly new concepts that come with, with understanding more about the world that's around us. And, and being stuck in a scientific view and, you know, being stuck in your zeitgeist in your time period, being stuck in, in that, you know, we know things change. When you look back in 1923, some of those things are kind of laughable. You, you have certain preoccupations with things that are based in the time period. 
the, the books you're reading, the school you're going to, the history you're learning may be slanted. We're, we're gonna, you're going to learn more. Or maybe as time progresses, you learn less. Uh, when you're under dictatorships and regimes, and you know, a lot of times you're in those systems, you don't realize it. And we talk about 1984 and Brave New World and all those things uh, in various episodes. You can... What you think is the truth, what you think is reality, is not necessarily what someone else in another country, another culture, that's not, that may not be the way they see it. And they may have very successful strategies that are totally different from yours, depending on where they're at. Uh, and, and it may be that your government or whoever's in control or in, in your family, you know, we know things like Jonestown Massacre in Africa and uh, cults, as we call them. Um, you can be, you can be really, uh, you can feel like the world's a certain way and it's not. And uh, that can go in, in, in a large way too. The entire uh, society can be like that, like the Nazis. Or, um, it's, it's, it's not, and you, you feel like your orientation's correct. You don't see it as being wrong until some catastrophe happens. So, and, and, uh, Forcing our viewpoints on people can be a problem sometimes, and I think, I think, as time goes on, we're starting to see that um, we're starting to deal with all these different realities come crashing into each other. Especially with the internet and with technology, you can learn so much about so many other places, and it 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 and how information is uh, assimilated and how how it's uh, taken apart and how it's put together and it can be uh, propaganda or it can be used by a corporation. Um, there's all these ways to distort the reality. And what becomes, what's become apparent, and I think ancients knew a lot more about this to be honest with you. Ancients are, you know, this whole process that you're gonna die. Where do you go when you die? Um, and that, that was my question when I was a seven year old boy. What, what happened to me? Why am I different? after I went to the hospital um, and before. Or, you know, in the first situation I had where um, I had this massive hemorrhaging in the hospital and almost died. What, what was that experience? Um, what, what did that mean when I left my body? Why did I see my body down there on, you know, on the, on the surgery table? And why did I see doctors in panic and trying, you know, trying to, to revive me? And, and, the, these things have a powerful effect, and I, I think early on I knew that there was more than more to reality than what I was being taught at school, what I was seeing uh, around me, and and I, we have these senses. And when you're around wild animals, they have this amazing sense for things that we can't see or hear. Sometimes, for God's sake, a dog, a canine, a good wolf, or coyote can hear and smell way beyond the human um, the the human baseline. Although I don't know how true that is, because in the Amazon there are tribes where the sense of smell and the sense of hearing is very acute, extreme. They can hear things because that's part of the hunting technique. That's You've developed those senses, just like we developed certain senses on the computer or how to drive a car. Somebody that doesn't know how to drive a car, it just seems overwhelmingly complex. And when you're moving through traffic at certain speeds, I mean, there's a whole skill set that's, that you derive from learning how to drive car, learning how to, to drive quickly in, in, in extreme traffic. So there's these skills that we acquire in our culture, in, in our time period. Uh, but there, there's so much more we know out there. 
and uh, and I and I think that so much more was something that ancient people uh, thought a lot about. And there's a lot of books of Greek, ancient Greek philosophy, the Eleusinian Mysteries, which is profound, uh, a profound ritual and ceremony that took place. Uh, there's a, the lesser mystery and the greater mystery. And the lesser mystery took place in the spring, I think, and the lesser towards the autumn time. And this whole concept of, of Halloween, of Day of the Dead, was a very powerful thing with ancient cultures, uh, within, with tribal systems. And I think we sometimes get detached from, we, we have this viewpoint, you know, turn the TV, have a beer, you know, go out with the boys, uh, go out with the girls, um, pay your bills. We have this really, we have this orientation we're used to and we think, well, you know, like my stepdad used to say, that's just the way, how, why, why do we do things like this, dad? Well, that's just the way it's always been done, son. That's just the way we do things. Why do we have to do it this way? That's the way we do it. And that, you know, the way we do it is different in different places and different time periods. So, I think Sarah made me really aware of this, this, this ghostly friend I had. I don't know how ghostly she is because she's so concrete in the dream world. Uh, made me aware of alternate time periods alternate realities and also different time periods have you read the book cloud atlas or seen the movie he kind of contemplates this whole thing of the same couple people being born over and over again of course his whole thing is uh, he you know it's i don't think he should have ever ever explained the premise of the book because his whole thing is is no matter what time period humans are predators they prey on each other that's just this human uh value that just keeps coming up over and over again. So I don't know if, how, if that's how I've seen this book, but um, this whole process of, of our life investing itself inside of this physical body. When I wrote the novel, uh, Timelines or Sarah, it allowed me to start uh, consciously contemplating these things I've been thinking about since I was a little boy. Not that I had in other ways. And I went to school, to university, or I read books. But it allowed me to take this, this sort of... Uh, other half of myself, I guess, and, and look at her and, 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 and create a story. And sort of the, you know, and the book's based on, on a true event, although the main character, David, who's a little bit like me, is um, in the beginning of the book, uh, without giving away the whole story, he, uh, he's, he's hit by a car and he dies. And that's, that's kind of how the book opens up. And Sarah's walking home from school with him. And, um, this horrible accident happens. And then everything goes backwards from that, that event. Um, and, and then all these different various time periods take place and different uh, conscious manifestations. And it's, it's, it's kind of complex, but it's entertaining. Allow me to entertain this whole idea of what are we? How do we create reality? Um, is, does it, this reality come into being when, when, we're, when we're conscious? I mean, what happens when you're conscious and you're walking around doing your daily task? And what happens when you're unconscious? Where are you when you're asleep? And like I said, I have very concrete dreams. We have nonsense dreams, and I always point that out. And dreams that are just based on too much food, or based on sexual outlet, or based on repetition because you've been doing the same thing over and over at your job. And they're surreal dreams. But I have very concrete narrative dreams. 
with entire realities intact that sometimes are vastly different from how I am in this waking reality. And Sarah's always in these in these dreams in one form or another. And so I I I think in the novel allows me to to sort of work with this whole idea of what what happens when two people fall in love. Can they fall it's is love something that's that's not only interdimensional, but it's it's kind of like it works itself out through time, through different time periods. And of course, this is a you know this is not a new idea. Um, this is lots of novels are based on on this, this this premise about love, about different time periods, about reincarnation, about lovers finding each other. It is interesting though when two people fall in love and and they have children and they have a family. That that. You know, I always see, I'll see an unattractive younger woman walking around. uh, She has her backpack on and she's getting on the bus to go to the university. And I'll think there, there's the, there's the threshold. There's the beginning of an entire generation of people. She'll have all these kids. She'll get married and have these kids and they'll have this whole, they'll build a house and, and these kids will grow up with a certain viewpoint and they'll have kids, and they'll build a house. And, you know, it's just this, it's almost like a like nuclear fission, a chain reaction happens. And, and that wouldn't happen unless a special set of circumstances takes place, either planned or an accident. And that's this genesis in, uh, in Middle Ages alchemy that takes place. Of course, the whole concept there is, is uh, involved in, in bettering the world, that the world's descended down from the, the Garden of Eden has fallen. You know, in, in, the, in, the, in the Christian belief system, uh, the, the, the earth has fallen to uh, a lesser state. You know, Adam and Eve walk out of the Garden of Eden and that beautiful place back there is, is gone. And you, we hear God's voice east of Eden. Well, that's one view. Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Hopi, Zuni, the, there's just... All these different views of that, but there, a, a, a lot of religions have some sort of a fall. So the whole baseline of of um, Middle Ages alchemy comes not only from the Jewish tradition, uh, the Kabbalah, but it comes from this uh, from the Christian tradition, tradition, and it has a lot of other things in there too. But through a special process, you can you can change uh, the low this this. Uh, lesser state of your body after the Garden of Eden, and you can have a new body, a, a new earth, uh, and, and see life. You're, you're reborn again. You're reborn again, and uh, a whole genesis takes place, and a whole beautiful reality is constructed where it's, it's, it can be like the Garden of Eden again. Things are new. Things are beautiful. Uh, there's been a rebirth, uh, and that's and Luna and Sol, um, these two opposites, uh, the White Philosopher's Stone and the Red Philosopher's Stone, are brought together to create this whole beautiful new reality. And so often you see the hermaphrodite with a mirror, a global mirror in, in its hand, signifying, and then there'll be beautiful forest in the background, and you'll see the animals, signifying that there's a rebirth, that there's a there's a a genesis of it. The world is not going to descend down into this uh, deprived, uh, dark state. It's going to move back up into this in, in, into this beautiful uh, phase. 
and you start that out with this couple and that's and beyond the chemistry because there was you know there's this physical chemistry that's the whole aspect of chemistry is uh, Western chemistry is born from uh, from alchemy which is actually uh, a, a Middle Eastern uh, um, an Islamic uh, uh, and alchemy comes from those cultures and comes from uh, I, I actually from Egypt um, ancient Egypt and from ancient Greece and so yeah without going into all these complex details and let's let's go to a song you're listening to late nights on in between stations radio broadcasting from Flagstaff Arizona with host David Hartley You're listening to Late Nights, on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley.
see that I've this is kind of a hard thing to talk about. Uh, sometimes it really flows well uh, on in between stations radio and come up with entertaining ideas or stories, but this particular concept's a difficult one to verbalize. Um, and I, I, I enjoy it, but it, it's difficult uh, sometimes to, to bring it out and to um, to make it into sort of a, a dialogue or discussion. I don't know how much of a discussion yeah, about you know what is the nature of reality and and how complex it is and how much is there out there that we don't see or understand and that we might later on or we might never understand. We just don't. We're so limited by our body, uh, by our physical dynamic, by our culture, by our points of view, that we just never get beyond that. That's one of the functions of the hallucinogenic plants that are used in, in these tribal ceremonies is to make you aware that beyond the, the and you know the mundane's not always bad. I don't even know if the world's mundane. I think a lot of uh, Western people use that concept. I've been around tribal people. It's not mundane. It's just it goes through cycles. It goes through differences. There's day, there's night, there's fall, there's spring, there's summer. Uh, there's all these 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 uh, changes that take place and ceremonies that move around with those. So um, so so part of those changes is becoming more aware of this of this other place of the other of this of these other worlds and these other and and I think. When you have a deep tribal tradition that's thousands of years old, you kind of, you have a, a lot of, uh, the, the trial and error is behind you. You kind of know how to mix the plants, how to use them, and then you kind of know how to use these shamans, uh, these curanderos, these, uh, what, the various names for healers. They're guides. They take you through these alternate realities. It's a very careful system. It's a very, it, it, there's not a lot of trial and error to it. There's, it, they, they kind of know what to do and how to take you through it. And it can be very overwhelming. When you have your baseline reality shattered through something like a death or an accident or um, an illness or something happens that, to, that takes you away from your everyday reality, it, it can be overwhelming. It can be, it can be very frightening uh, when, we get, when we get into the unfamiliar and if you if you lose something like your body and you die and you can't go back to you can imagine that's going to be a pretty big situation there, a pretty different situation, a radical situation. And that's why things like the Book of the Dead, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, have been written uh, to to guide you through this process. There, there's a meditation to help you move through the process of life after death. This is, another, this is yet another dimension, add-on, another reality. And, you know, of course, the other side of the fence, the card is like, well, there, we did, after we, when we die, that's it. That's the end of it. Well, is it? Um, there seems to be a lot of evidence and a lot of thought and a lot of experiences that point to to, to it being otherwise. And of course, if you haven't experienced anything personally like that, then what can you say? You know, or what can I say? If our experiences aren't the same. Uh, it, it can be difficult. If you haven't taken ayahuasca before, um, if you haven't driven a car before, if you've never made love to a beautiful woman before or a beautiful man or whatever, 
And if you've never been in love with somebody, it's kind of hard to uh, to explain those to somebody that haven't hasn't had that experience. And there's just so many experiences out there of people for thousands of years that said, "Look, there's more to this. There's there. This is a multi-dimensional universe we live in. Even science tells us that. We know that's that's the case. So what does that mean? Can you can you destroy energy? I I don't think so. It just it it. It moves and recycles through the process of nature, you know, through the seasons. Um, it doesn't seem like you could, anything really dies. It just takes other shapes and forms or, or moves into various realities. And often be, because of our culture and reality, we're not aware of that. And I think our reality is based in right now, based in, in uh, getting enjoyment, based on and turning that enjoyment into buying things into experiencing a variety of things. We always have to be getting something new to, to, have, a, to have a cool experience. All right, so what's there that we don't see? What's, what's there that we do see? Um, are, there, are there beings that care about us both in the other world and this and this one we, we're not fully aware of, that we don't completely understand who or what they are. Um, materialism versus non-materialism. And maybe we have instruments that can't measure a lot of things that indeed are physical. That once we have those instruments, then it'll become apparent to us, at least through science, that, that that's there. But you know, these, these spiritual orders, these tribal orders, these 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 thoughts these thoughts and philosophies been going on for a thousand years have said yeah there's there's a lot more we've had these personal experiences and there's a lot more out there than you think there is have you uh have you ever before we close i want to bring up this interesting uh concept called topless uh, alexandria david neal uh, was one of the first outside people um, white people to go to for forbidden Tibet, uh, and she she was at one of these adventurers that walked hundreds, thousands of miles, uh, and she one of the first people to go to uh, Tibet, and um, she learned the language and she spent a lot of time with these uh, spiritual leaders with the the current Dalai Lama at the time, and um, she wrote several books that introduced the world to. Uh, to uh, Tibetan uh, Buddhism, which is a which is an interesting, you know, there's a lot of different types of Buddhism. This is one of the more interesting types. A lot of people are attracted to it, and people accused her of telling stories and not and fabricating things. Of course, now when we look back, we see almost everything she's talking about is that was was real. But when you get into these tribal realities, which uh, Tibetan Buddhism is is sort of based on. Uh, before the Buddhism was, was there, there was these very powerful tribal set realities that were that were ancient, and and so when Buddhism came, it, it sort of fused itself with the with the indigenous tribal reality, and you get this very unique form of Buddhism. Uh, and one of the things that's involved in that, and this is involved in, with a lot of tribal systems, is is making uh, these topless. That's the name they use. The tribes here have other names for it, but you make these guardians. Uh, you make these spirit entities or into physical manifestations, and they can uh, attack people, or they can protect people. They can warp reality. 
distort reality. Uh, and these, uh, these shamans, these medicine people, and these sorcerers, they battle each other. Uh, and they use these, these toplas, these entities, to, to, and they're what we call magic. And, they're, and that's something that uh, Alexandria David Neal pointed out, is it's not magic. It's everyday life. You know, like I keep saying, dreams and visions, when you go to these tribal realities, this is just part of their everyday life. They don't, they don't segment things up. It's, it's, it's all holistic. It's all part of it. Everybody has visions and dreams. People see these other entities from other worlds. It's in, you know, they're in the village. They're walking around. There's times to be in certain places and times not to be in certain places. And there's conduits. There's doorways. Like the ancient Pueblo people here, often you see these bricked up doorways in these ancient dwellings. And those are passageways into the other world. And the, the, these were people that before there were highways, before there were, you know, the, the internet, before there was news, before there was television, before there was radio, uh, where you, when, when you walked, these people didn't have horses. Uh, before the horses came, this, you know, this is a whole different world. And these people are extremely intelligent and they're involved in very deep philosophical processes and meditational processes and prayer and fasting and using hallucinogenic plants. This has been going on for thousands of years. The ancestral Pueblo here in the Southwest, because they're, the tribes are still around, still practicing these ancient ceremonies, it's, it's, it's still going on. It did never stop. And, and it comes in contrast sometimes, you know, to, to the current paradigm that we brought with us when the colonial people come and the Spaniards come, the paradigm from the old world. Uh, and when it, it came crashing into this this very ancient reality, this very ancient paradigm that existed for thousands of years, the old world came crashing into what we call the new world, and it caused a lot of conflict and problems. But people survived. People continued on with their ceremonies and their thought processes. So, toplas. Uh, or something, uh, there's other names used with the tribes here in the southwest, with the tribes in the Amazon. There are these spirit entities, there are these, these physical beings that are interdimensional. You see these a lot in the hallucinogenic worlds of ayahuasca and yopo, uh, when you're fasting and, and, and praying, or when you're meditating in, in the zendo or zazen, there are all these types of interdimensional beings that are, that are present in that process. Uh, and it's been going on for a long time. So um, the topas are an interesting concept because you can actually form a reality, you know, like, like in the, uh, the um, alchemy process. You, you form a being, uh, you know, the hermaphrodite in that process, that, and from that being a whole world is created, a whole reality is created. And that's not hard to see. Look at television. Look at... Uh, look at even a little simple book you read, can, there's a whole reality invested in there, in the television shows, in the news. The, you know, imagination's powerful. creates our, the physical world we live in. It's, it's, it's quite powerful. And so it's, it's all in your head. Well, the whole world was born, we're living in, in our head. You know, and the, the, the ancient uh, Upanishads, which were supposedly, I guess, written before the Bible, whatever that means, um, this is the great I am, the great self. Um, and the great self is lonely and lives in a dark void and creates the, uh, creates the many worlds. When we come into being, our consciousness creates this world to, to a large degree because it's, 
it's, it's filtered through our mind, through our body, through the way we've grown up, through the books we read. And as we grow, that consciousness becomes more and more concrete, especially when it's involved in a culture, in a system like the United States, good or bad. So, toklas are interesting because it's kind of how you sort of start out a reality, or how you distort a reality. And you send these beings, uh, Alexandria David, Alexandria David Neal talks a lot about this. It's fascinating if you want to read her book, Magic and Myth in Tibet. Is that the name of it? But it's nothing new because all these tribes have similar things going on. And I, I, I think we're, I think it's it's interesting. I think that the new paradigm is a multiplicity of realities. I think that's what we're going to have to start accepting. That we have this very complex view now of things. We have information available. All these different languages. We have artificial intelligence that can speed up the process. That can help us learn more, more or, or distort reality, as I've talked about. But we, we're, all these things come crashing into each other. When we're still having, for God's sakes, these horrible wars, what's going on in Ukraine? Is is it, it's east and west again, and it's the innocent people again in the middle. Is it really NATO, non-NATO? Are we going to keep killing people over the Christian view, or the Buddhist view, or the Islamic view? Are we going to keep bombing people and killing people in our countries and stealing their resources under the guise of the CIA? Or, you know, you can. You know, I've talked about this stuff. So it's just it's we're in a, a very interesting time period, and I think the new paradigm is a multiplicity of realities, not only in our Western world, not only in our present world, but what's out there in the outside of the realms of the planet Earth, or what's inside of the Earth. How much don't we see? scientists now, a group of them, saying there's a lot of life forms we don't fully understand. One in particular, I can't remember his name, is like we don't have the instruments to measure a lot of the physical life forms or life forms that are out there we're not seeing. There's, there's, a, there's a whole complex situation out there, various realities that we're not seeing or understanding. Yeah, and we can see that with the quantum world. Like, for God's sakes, this chaotic, uh, crazed world, where a photon can be in one photon can be in two different places, and totally across the the world, one the same one. You have it in two different places, and that's this whole crazy world underneath the surface of our sort of clockwork Newtonian world where everything's planned out where you have the calendar where the sun comes up and goes down you know it's it, 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 at the same time and, and, and during the seasons and, and we have things can be the clockwork Newtonian world is based on a very chaotic one underneath the surface uh, and how does that make you know the, the old question why don't you uh, I think it's sort of been answered but when you sit in a chair or put your hand on the table, why don't you uh, fall through the spaces there? Because there's all these atoms moving it, and protons and neutrons are moving at fantastic speeds, and it all appears to be solid, when really the world's not solid. Everything's moving. Uh, how is it that we even come up with the concept that we're one person? When Where does the consciousness begin? What cell does it begin in? What happens to you when you go to sleep? Um, are we really a collective being, many beings? Are we one person? Or is that some concept that the culture we've grown up in, the reality we've been taught, the school we go to, has taught us? 
what's outside of that. And I think the Sarah figure for me was a, was a beginning when I was a boy to start to explore this world outside of the one that I was being taught in school, outside of the one where people were saying, well, this is what this is what it is. And as I grew, I think Sarah said, hey, Dave, you know, this is there's there's a lot more to your reality than you think there is. Hey, I'm in this dream. You're asleep. But this is this is a whole other life that we had or will have. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a part of you. So it's it's interesting, and I so we're coming to the end of our of our uh, broadcast here, and I hope everything's going well. Are you asleep? Are you awake? I've finished off two cups of coffee, and it's it's daylight now. I'm wondering about that uh, hurricane. It'd be interesting to see what's going to happen. This is during our rainy season. If it'll increase the moisture, if we'll have big, huge thunderstorms and flash floods like we've had the last two years it was pretty pretty late rainy season here in the southwest so it's going to be interesting to see what this hurricane does these storms are you know storms are interesting lightning storms thunderstorms they seem to kind of distort reality they seem to kind of like change things there's something deep down in a lot of us that we hope for the big storm we don't want anybody to get hurt or killed that we hope for something to change this cemented reality. <laughs> this mundane with the word we, this where we can't seem to get out of. We're enslaved to something, uh, and so the big storm coming in introduces something new. Maybe it'll shut down the, the the crazed, mad machine world for a while. I don't know. I live in a place where I can still step into the nature, to the still step into the natural world goes on for hundreds of miles. I can still step into a beautiful tribal system, to a a beautiful culture that's not mine, and get new ideas and concepts, and realize that some of these things, some of these ceremonies, some of these ways of seeing alternate reality have been going on for thousands of years. I can step outside of the big city. I can step outside of the machine world into a a much more expansive um, reality and I would suggest that you can too just sometimes by opening up a book or even seeing a movie just challenging the idea it has to be this way because friends it doesn't have to be that way and I think I realized that when I came home from war I realized the tragedy of life when it goes in a, a direction that's not necessarily a good one and that you can be a part of that tragedy and not necessarily wanting to be. You can even be forced to do that. War is a very horrible, tragic event. There's a lot of tragic things, but war is one of those. And my thing was stepping out of that, renewing myself, healing myself, and and, and trying to build something different than from the reality that I had come from that caused me to be in that war. Or whatever the situation is, it doesn't have to be a war. It can be something else that wakens you up to a broader reality, to the possibilities of changing things. So, making a better America, making a better family, making a better you. The wounds can heal no matter how severe the situation is sometimes. And if it is severe enough, maybe there is the freedom of moving beyond this realm into the other world worlds and I think that's what Plato Socrates talked about in his last hours of life in this reality 
was um, when his friend said, if, if there's this beautiful world, this philosophical world, this, this, this world of forms, this heaven that you talk about, this ideal place, then why don't we just kill ourselves and get out of this, this suffering? And then here's Socrates, you know, he's going to drink the, the poison, the hemlock. He's going to be dead in, in, in a couple of hours. And they're like, why don't we just, let's end it all with you. And let's just, you know, this life's suffering. And, and Socrates says, no, no, there's this beautiful experience, this learning that we get in this body, that we're here for a reason, that, that, that this experience is important, and, and that there's something, there's other realities beyond this one. You know, the, the Ellicinian mysteries, the, the great Greek mysteries. If you want to look up some cool stuff, look that up. This, this, this event for 2,000, over 2,000 years happened that convinced people totally that there was another life, that there was life beyond this one. And even the Christianized Roman emperor tried to shut down the Ellicinian mysteries because people were having this fantastic vision. They didn't want to convert to Christianity. They, they, they knew there was another life beyond this one, without a doubt. Nobody ever revealed the Ellicinian mysteries. The, the, nobody ever went against them. They all were complete, 100% converts for their entire life after being involved in this fantastic event called the Ellicinian mysteries. And there's a lot of different things like this in ancient Egypt. And ancient southwest and there's these broaden our realities and see that we can heal that we can be there's so much more out there that we can move beyond the corridors of where we're at right now that you can even if you're in a war in ukraine something beautiful can come out of that maybe and and the the, the river's only going to flood in epic proportions for so long and then the flood's going to recede and a new time period's going to come you know like the nile river and flood and would go back into its uh, into its bed and then flow like it had done for a while and, and, and then it would yeah I don't know alright so have a nice night um, have a nice morning depending where you're at love you and this is In Between Stations signing off the air
This is In Between Stations Radio.